I was checking in my diary uh, when it was we actually began this series in Paul's letter to the Romans, and it was the 25th of April last year, and tonight's message is sermon number 50. If this were the 10,000 metres at an athletics meeting, we'd be close now uh, to hearing the bell being rung to indicate that we're entering the final lap of the race. I'm not going to try and work out exactly where that falls, but we'll be concluding this series uh, within the next few months. It's been a little while since we were in Romans, isn't it? And for some of you, quite a lot has happened in the intervening weeks, having had a break through the summer, many of you. Uh, But helpfully, at the start of chapter 15, where we've just read, uh, Paul is bringing to a conclusion those matters that he's been teaching us back in chapter 14, if you can think that far back. And it's all about how we're to deal with one another in the life of the church when we have differences of conscience in those areas where the Bible does not necessarily provide really prescriptive, clear, black and white direction in a particular area or on a particular matter or course of action. Uh, There isn't a clear, uh, do this, don't do that. And so we looked at Romans 14 uh, in, in two halves. First of all, we looked at verse, verses 1 to 12. We did that under the heading of issues of Christian liberty and conscience. We asked ourselves, first of all, what does Paul mean by the weak and the strong? You see it there in the opening verse of chapter 15. And that theme is through the previous chapter. There are these two distinctions being made. Paul is talking about a strength of conscience with reference to things that we are now at liberty to do as Christian believers. The issue of whether or not a Christian can or should eat meat that previously had been offered to an idol in pagan worship is a well-known and helpful example quoted by Paul. It was a real issue uh, for many of the Christians in Paul's day the more mature believers who understood more fully how free now actually we are to be able to eat of such things. Uh, They have a stronger conscience than others for whom this is actually quite difficult. Maybe some had actually come out of those pagan practices uh, and they would struggle to have any kind of association with those things again. Uh, including the, the kind of meat that once was offered uh, in those forms of worship. And also converted Jews who are struggling to shake off the many dietary requirements that have played such a large part in their Jewish upbringing. For some of those converted Jews, they found it difficult to abandon many of the Jewish feast days. They are at complete liberty not to follow those things now. But if that's what you've grown up with for your whole life, those things can be difficult to let go. It's not a sin for them to observe them. But they don't need to. But for some, it's a real issue of conscience. Well, Paul makes it clear, doesn't he, that these kinds of struggles are to be expected and anticipated in the life of the church. 
Uh, he doesn't give us any kind of instruction to suggest that these things ought not to be so and here's what do a b c and you'll never have this issue again and you can just forget about it and move on no he gives us these principles that enable us to continually uh, practice uh, these kinds of attitudes of heart so that we can bear with one another on these things uh, we thought about the kinds of topics that, that this might include for us today. I'm not going to go into that now. If you've forgotten, the sermon's on the website. You can go and listen to it again. We saw that there are four principles which apply. We're to receive one another as fellow believers, verse 1 of chapter 14. We're not to despise one another, verse 3. We're not to stand in judgment over one another, verses 3 and 4. You are to be fully convinced in your own mind on these issues of conscience, verses 5 and 6. Paul gives us three reasons why. Because God has received your brother or your sister. So who are you not to? Be content in doing all things as to the Lord. And Christ is our master. We are not masters over one another. Christ is. And then we looked at the second half of the chapter. I called that the nitty-gritty of kingdom life. Paul continues to explain and apply the kinds of attitude of heart that we must have towards one another in the church. And we had seven headings. Uh, we have this evening as well, by the way. Uh, in areas of liberty and conscience, do nothing that will cause another Christian to stumble. Be mindful of and sympathetic to the conscience of another believer. To ignore this principle is to show yourself as not walking in love. Be careful to avoid allowing something that you are at liberty to do to be spoken of as evil by someone else. There are things more important than your personal liberty. This is how to serve Christ and to please God. And then he goes over that one more time. <laughs> at the end of the chapter. And so as we move into the 15th chapter, uh, what we have now is Paul's concluding remarks on this theme. And he brings some closing exhortations on this important topic. And the intent, the intent as we'll see when we get to verse 6, the intent is that churches should remain unified and at peace in the worship and praise of God. That's his heart, ultimately, in all of these things. So let's consider these opening six verses, then, of Romans 15. And let's look at the opening phrase of verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. The strong are to shoulder the responsibility of bearing with the weak. Those who are the most mature and who could if they, 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 they could if they chose to exercise the greatest degree of liberty, strong in faith, strong in truth, strong in doctrine, strong in convictions, it will not do for the strong to be trampling all over the conscience of the weak. It cannot ever be that the attitude of the strong is that it's just tough 
on those who are weaker if they're troubled by the choices I'm making. Can't have that kind of attitude towards one another in the church. You are to bear with them, which isn't simply putting up with them. It's much more positive than that. It's actively, thoughtfully, intentionally supporting and upholding them as they continue in their walk of faith, as they continue to learn and grow and mature in the things of Christ and the faith. Several years ago, some footage hit the news headlines when in a long-distance race, a strong runner who was heading for a fairly decent time came across another runner in front of him who'd actually been doing quite well, but who dramatically and suddenly got into great difficulty and was clearly in some distress. And that strong runner was seen to slow right down and get alongside that runner who was struggling and remained with them and saw them to the finishing line. That's kind of the attitude that Paul is talking about here for us in the life of the church on a spiritual level. It's a little like watching a mum and dad with young children on a walk in the park or as their young child is struggling to master riding a bike or to balance on roller skates. What do the parents have to do? They have to slow their pace right down to match that of their children so that they all stay together, so that they're on hand to assist and encourage in time, the children will grow and get faster. But they're not there yet. The day will come when mum and dad are struggling to keep up with the children. But not yet. Well, Paul is kind of urging us spiritually within the church to, to have that, that same kind of heart and concern for one another on these matters which are issues of conscience. Now, it is worth saying again that if it's an area which the Bible very clearly addresses and makes it absolutely uh, crystal clear uh, that which is right or wrong in a particular issue, uh, well, it will, not look, it will not do for the stronger ones in the church to overlook the younger Christian who is going against that. The stronger Christians are duty-bound to take the lead both by teaching and by example. If a young Christian, for example, is known to be engaging in some sexual sin, it will not do for the older ones, the stronger ones in the church, to overlook it and dismiss it. Well, they're young yet. They'll learn in time. No, in such an instance, the strong must rebuke and correct. Now, of course, they must be careful how they do it. They cannot do it with harsh words, so that they, they, they crush this young, this young Christian, but they cannot just sit idly by. Paul is addressing matters in issues where we all have different scruples, where it's okay to have different scruples, and where perhaps it's to be anticipated, and where that thing that this one does or refrains from doing in itself is not sinful. 
the strong ought to feel that they can do this. Before God, you're, you're not under any obligation to do it, but you're at liberty to do it. Well, the strong bear the heaviest responsibility in maintaining peace and unity in such circumstances. And it's not to be done grudgingly. Because secondly, in the, in the second half of verse 1, uh, there's no place in the church for pleasing yourself. We, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Selflessness is a vital disposition in the heart of a Christian. And a lack of it lies behind many of the problems and difficulties that churches encounter a lack of selflessness. I want it done my way. I want it done according to my agenda. I want my preferences to be met. I want my feelings on this matter to be taken into account. I'm going to judge this according to how it makes me feel. If that's you, you are not one of the strong ones in the church, even if you think you are. Because that kind of attitude isn't found in the strong. Those who are truly strong will have been pulled up by Paul's words. And they'll be heeding his counsel on these things. Selfish thinking destroys fellowship. Selfish thinking destroys fellowships. One pastor put it like this. This is how we all must think and behave. I am part and parcel of a Christian family whose welfare is infinitely more important to me than my own personal wishes. I'm part and parcel of a Christian family whose welfare is infinitely more important to me than my own personal wishes. That's what Paul is driving at here with these words of counsel for us. And then thirdly, as we move into verse 2, my overriding concern is to please my neighbour for their spiritual good. Well, this is a huge one, isn't it? Not to put up with them, not to humour them, to please them to make their Christian life and experience as much of a joy and delight as I can, whilst at the same time leading and guiding them into growth in grace and growth in truth and advancement in the faith, so that they one day will be amongst the strong ones. So it's not simply to please them so that they think, oh, I can get my own way here. It's not simply to please them, to pander to them. And it's certainly not to please them so that actually they're starting to get those things that are not good for them spiritually. No, it's, it's seeking to please them, but it must lead to their spiritual good. It must be 
for edification. That must be the final outcome. As much as it depends upon me to keep their path free from every hurdle and discouragement, because they'll have hurdles and discouragements aplenty without me adding to them, that's what I'm going to give myself to in the life of the church. I must admit, I, I found myself taken into check on this particular point as I pause to think this through and appreciate for myself what it was that I was going to have to stand here and tell you. To please my neighbour for their spiritual good so that it leads to their edification. This is massive in the life of a church. Let each of us be seeking to lead one another, please one another, that it does us good spiritually. And when it talks about leading to edification, well, who are the ones who are going to be edified? Well, obviously, the weaker ones. It's obviously referring to them. But actually, you and the whole church ultimately will be edified through this. All of us will grow as we behave like this towards one another. In all of your interactions with them, you are to be a cause of spiritual growth and progress in their life. How can that not impact upon the rest of the church? How can, how can that not in turn do you good spiritually? How such a heart as this would pray. How such a life as this would live. How many judgmental thoughts need to be abandoned? How many schedules might need to be amended? How many priorities might need to be changed? How many goalposts might need to be shifted a little? And why do you and I need to take this seriously? Well, I think Paul would hope by now that you're already able to answer that question with what he's written in front of you. But he's not about to leave anything to chance because for every individual Christian and for every individual church, this is too big an issue to get wrong. So why do you need to take this seriously? Well, number four, verse three, this is to be like Christ. Even Christ did not please himself. But as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Who was strong yet bore with the weak? Who came into this world and lived and died not following his own agenda? but in order to fulfill the will of his heavenly Father and to please him. You read those central chapters of John's Gospel uh, where John records many things that Jesus said that you don't find in the other three Gospels. And one of the key themes there is the issue of Jesus in relationship to the will of his Father. For this reason I came, he said. Who gave himself over 
to being despised and rejected by men and to becoming that man of sorrows and to become acquainted with grief. If ever there was a man who did not live to please himself and who bore with the scruples of the weak, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. If ever there was a man who did not live to please himself, but to please God the Father and to do his will, it was Jesus. He bore many reproaches against himself. There was much opposition. There was all kinds of hatred and reviling that was directed against Christ. Paul is actually quoting Psalm 69, which is one of the messianic psalms. And let me just turn to that psalm and read a few of the verses beginning at verse 7. You may wish to go home and read the whole psalm through. Psalm 69 from verse 7. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And this is speaking of Christ. And so as Paul talks about us uh, being ready to forsake those things which could be ours, when Paul talks about us having this selflessness, and as we might feel uh, our own prideful hearts stirring up in rebellion against it, he says, well, just pause right there and think about Christ. He is your example and your role model in all of these things. For the Father's sake and because of Christ's zeal for God's house and for God's people, he, he, he willfully, willingly put himself in a position of reproach. It was difficult, it was painful, it would ultimately cost him his own life. And that which Christ endured is far greater than anything that Paul is exhorting you to endure here. If Jesus would do that for his Father, if Jesus would do that for the church, then surely you can do this. That Jesus is to be our example in making choices of self-denial and selflessness, and denying yourself liberties that you could quite rightly embrace, but, but you forego them and you do that for the sake of pleasing your brothers and sisters in Christ that they might be edified and that you might not in any way be a stumbling block to them. So we, ha we have to ask ourselves, you must ask yourself, I, I must ask myself, uh, how are we as we relate with other believers? How are you with those who don't naturally fit into your little niche? How are you with those who you know uh, will require you to curb certain things in your life for their benefit and for their good. Those who will require you to refrain from this, to draw back from that. If you are living according to this exhortation that Paul places before us, those perhaps who in a worldly sense would just be, consi just be considered a hindrance or a weight around your neck that you'd rather not have to carry. 
This is true kingdom life that Paul is talking about here. Uh, this Hebrew of Hebrews, this former Pharisee of Pharisees, uh, he's also had to learn all of these lessons that he's pleading with us to take on board. Fifthly, as he moves into verse 4, to heed this is to take instruction and encouragement from the Scriptures. And Paul's talking about the Old Testament. That was the Scriptures for his audience as he writes in New Testament days before they had all of the New Testament printed in front of them as we do today. It's the Old Testament he's talking about. And what he's saying is that you'll find these principles written all through the Old Testament Scriptures. And even the truth concerning Christ that is just brought for your instruction and encouragement comes from the Old Testament Scriptures. It's Psalm 69. This is the Jesus of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and of all the other Scriptures which speak of that salvation and righteousness which is found in no other but which was secured for sinners by means of Jesus humbling himself and making himself of no reputation. Here is the one who has stooped lower than any man or woman could ever stoop. None of us are stooping from the realms of heaven, from the realms of glory, from the realms of sinless perfection, are we? Christ did in order that he might bring to you that spiritual good that you so desperately need. How dare we kick against this instruction if that's our, our temptation that Paul brings to us here? How dare we imagine that this is beneath us or that we can find some reason to justify our rejection of it when what is being asked of you and me is a drop in the ocean compared to that which Christ has done for us. And it's all found in the Scriptures. And of course, Christ is the preeminent example, but he's not the only one, and there are plenty others in the Old Testament. There's plenty of example and teaching and instruction to be found all through the Old Testament. How many Old Testament believers were brought low in circumstances they didn't deserve as part of their being faithful to the Lord. How many of them had to make themselves low in order that they could do that? How many simply could not go off and live the life they wanted to live and do their own thing? How many do we see yielding themselves to the will and purposes of God, humbling themselves, denying themselves for the sake of other, others and for the good of, for the good of others? Read again of Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Gideon and Hannah and Ruth and Esther, all the rest. Taking responsibility for those weaker than yourself, not living to please yourself, seeking to please your neighbour and work for their spiritual good, seeking to do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. So it's not something new, Paul is saying. This is life in the kingdom of God and it's found throughout the whole Bible. And only the whole Bible 
will provide you with the kind of perspective and understanding that you need as a Christian. One pastor famously said, if you want to be a whole Christian, that's spelt W-H-O-L-E, if you want to be a whole Christian, you need the whole Bible. And he was right. He was right. Uh, This is Christ, through his apostle, endorsing the Old Testament scriptures as a necessary place of study for the Christian, for your learning, for endurance, for encouragement, to be built up within your own soul. You will find hope refreshed and restored and strengthened by reading and studying the Old Testament. To dismiss the Old Testament is to choose a path of spiritual poverty and weakness. And then number six, as we move into verse five, do not forget how kind and long-suffering God has been with you. May the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. And Paul takes us again to the greater. We are the lesser in these arguments, and he takes us to the greater. Remember his patience and comfort and encouragement that he has shown to you. Think back to Jesus with Peter this morning. Patience and encouragement. At that point, Peter's still fairly green behind the ears spiritually in things of the faith. Uh, To a large degree, at that point, Peter is still in the category of the weak, not the strong. But Jesus deals with him with such tenderness and kindness, whilst at the same time seeking to teach them and grow them in faith and understanding. As God is with you, you must be one to the other, Paul says here. Remember, the slave is not greater than his master. May God grant you. Some some translations use the word give, give you. May he give you, the God who gives. You may only obtain this. All of these things that Paul is exhorting upon us here, you may only obtain this because God is the source and because God gives to you that which you need. Everything that you need God is the provider. We need to understand this. This is why Paul makes it a matter of prayer. May the God of patience and comfort grant this to you. We need that which only God can give. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. He gave. Romans 8.32, he freely gives us all things. James 1, every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 he says, what do you have that you did not receive? Because God has given you all things. Back in the Old Testament, 
Don't forget the Old Testament. Genesis 22, verse 14. One of the names of God. Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. He's the great giver. Every aspect of your salvation has been provided by God. Your Saviour, justification, repentance, faith, sanctification, grace, wisdom, all of those things crammed into those opening 12 chapters of Romans. The only thing you contribute is the sin for which Christ died. It's all you bring. Everything else comes from the Lord, his gracious gift to you. Well, says Paul, may God grant you to be like-minded in unity according to Christ, following his example in his strength for his sake. That's his heart for all of us. You'll never agree on everything, but you can ensure that areas of disagreement are not the cause of disunity. And the strong must take the lead in maintaining this within the life of the church. If you want some homework, have a read through Ephesians 4 and 5. And see there the occasions where Paul uses the phrase, one another. And take note of the, the exhortations that are attached to that phrase, one another. And then finally, as we go to verse 6, then we shall be unified in the praise of God, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm fairly sure that all of us really understand within our hearts that, that is the place where we need to be. And I'm sure for most of us, we will say, that, that is the place I want to be with the Lord's people. With one mind, one mouth, glorifying our God and Saviour. I'm sure there were times when the Apostle Paul felt like he'd had his fill of dealing with disunited churches. And he understands that in so many cases, that lack of, harm, that lack of harmony would never have occurred if the believers in that church had taken note of teaching like this. It all could have been avoided. Broken fellowship impedes and hinders our being able to truly sing together in the praise of God. Glorifying God is such an important thing. But to do it together in the church, as the church, with hearts truly united in praise and worship and thanksgiving, with no issues between us. That is nothing short of a foretaste of heaven. And Paul wants you to enjoy it now and have a foretaste of it now. And God wants and God deserves this kind of praise from his united people. <coughs> Praise coming from united hearts and mouths. This truly honours Christ because this kind of unity is part of the fruit of that salvation that he's come to provide. 
this is part of the salvation that we are to know and experience in the church. This, in part, is what he's called us to. In fact, you could argue that this is the ultimate thing that we've been called to, that this is the pinnacle and the goal here in verse 6. You need no greater motivation than this. The reason why there is no place for pleasing yourself and for this bearing with one another is so that it might be for edification. And because it is to be, we are to be imitators of God, this is to be like Christ. And because it's necessary for our unity. But even above all of that, we have to take this seriously because it results in a heartfelt and unified worship of God where he receives all the glory. That's the pinnacle. There's nothing to top that. There's nothing more important than that. And that is what God longs for us, his people, to enjoy from the heart in all truth and right worship. There cannot be any greater purpose than that. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that always feels thy blood so freely shed for me, a heart resigned, submissive, meek, my great Redeemer's throne, where only Christ is heard to speak, where Jesus reigns alone. A heart in every thought renewed and full of love divine. Because you can't, you can't conjure this up yourself. Perfect and right and pure and good a copy, Lord, of thine. Well, by God's grace, let's give ourselves to this.